relationship between Austria and France must be cemented by marriage. <laughs> My youngest daughter Antoine will be Queen of France. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. So I glossed over the American Revolution, despite it being a significant event in world history. My thinking was that my American audience would be more familiar with it already anyway, and though I won't roll right into it, I'm still hoping to do an American History 100 after we get through world history. So instead, I want to double or actually triple down on the French Revolution. Today we'll get through some background leading up to the beginnings of it. Next week, we'll cover the bulk of the actual revolution and the reign of terror, and two weeks from today, we'll talk about Napoleon. Our primary movie today is Farewell, My Queen, a French film from 2012 with Diane Kruger as Marie Antoinette. But I'm going to tie in a couple other movies first to get us there. First, a personal favorite of mine, Brotherhood of the Wolf from 2001, though I feel compelled to call it a guilty pleasure now. I rewatched it for this episode, and it does not hold up well. Plus, it is better suited for the big screen. The film is told in flashback from the point of view of a marquis holed up in his home at the start of the French Revolution. He's attempting to record the true story of the Beast of Givoudan, sure I said that way wrong, before the mob of commoners break in and capture him. This isn't a full episode on Brotherhood of the Wolf, so I won't be recounting the whole thing, but I wanted to highlight it and suggest you check it out. Though, please watch it in French if you do. That's a good policy in general, but what I've seen of the dub version of this one in particular is not good. So, in the mid-1760s in southern France, there were around 200 attacks by a wolf or wolves on people. Estimates aren't great, but around 100 people may have been killed. It was so bad that Louis XV had to intervene and send hunters down from Paris. Accounts at the time claimed the beast was much larger than a normal wolf. Many locals believed it to be a supernatural being. Indeed, it was finally killed with a silver bullet. More of a token thing, but the hunter who took it down made silver bullets when going after the beast, just in case. The movie Brotherhood of the Wolf starts with this legend and takes it in a different direction, involving political conspiracies, etc. Roger Ebert called the film an explosion at the genre factory, as it's part horror, part martial arts, part romance, part political thriller. Historically, it was 1767 when the beast was killed. Whether it was a lone wolf or not, the attacks did stop after this point. Three years later, an Austrian princess was married to Louis XV's grandson and heir, Louis Auguste. This princess will be our main character this week, Marie Antoinette. The movie Farewell, My Queen doesn't start until 1789, so we're going to meet the queen first in Sofia Coppola's 2006 film, Marie Antoinette, which, frankly, the only reason I didn't give it its own episode is its poor reviews. It's a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, yeah, it could be worse. It's actually not bad as a rundown of historical events and does work as a glimpse at the opulent life lived by Marie Antoinette. But as a narrative film, it's not great and the tone just seems odd throughout. Anyway, we meet Marie, played by Kirsten Dunst, in 1770. 
As I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, she was the sister of the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. Her marriage at the age of 14 was an arranged one to seal the friendship between the French and the Holy Roman Empire, who had been at odds for some time. Marie was born Maria Antonia and adopted the French version Marie Antoinette when she moved there and married the Dauphin. There was a lot of grumbling at the time, as many in France weren't fans of this alliance as it had pulled them into the Seven Years' War. Louis Auguste is played in the film by Jason Schwartzman. He is awkward and shy, and his hobbies include hunting and locksmithing, and this is all historically accurate. A major plot point in the movie is the couple's failure to even consummate their marriage. This, again, was an issue in real life. It appears that despite being married and sharing a bed, it was seven years before the couple finally began to attempt to conceive an heir. In the meantime, this put a lot of pressure on Marie and the kingdom. In the film, they put it all on Louis. He doesn't appear to be gay or anything, just a combination of shy, scared, and uninterested. She tries to be flirtatious with him, but without pressuring him. When the king's sister-in-law gives birth to a son, Marie is distraught. We see her taking solace in all the fineries of life at the Palace of Versailles. She enjoys the clothes and gambling and staying up all night. There's a middle school-style social pecking order between all the ladies at court, which Marie finds annoying yet participates in. The women at court, as well as Marie's mother back home, blame her for not being able to excite passion in the Dauphin. This problem escalates when Louis XV dies in 1774 and her husband is crowned Louis XVI. Now the heir to the throne would be Louis's brother and his son if Marie and Louis don't have a son. The timeline in the movie is a little off. They have a big party for Marie's 18th birthday after the death of Louis XV, but she actually turned 18 about six months before he died. We get a small scene with important ramifications of Louis' advisors convincing him to send financial help to the American colonists in their war for independence. He's a little skeptical about encouraging them to rebel against their monarch, but they all agree it's worth it to thwart the English. Louis had been on the throne just over two years when the American Declaration of Independence was signed. We get an odd sequence in the film where Marie's brother, the emperor, comes to visit them and talks with the king, comparing sex to his locksmithing hobby, after which he finally sleeps with his wife. But that's apparently how it went down in real life. In a letter from the time, the emperor is reported to have called them, quote, a couple of complete blunderers, unquote. So we jump ahead and Marie gives birth to a baby girl. We then jump another couple years ahead and see her doting on her young daughter. We see Marie reading from Rousseau, which is a little ironic as... His idea of the social contract influenced not only the American Revolution, but the impending French Revolution. We see her have an affair with a Swedish soldier by the name of Fersen. He was a prominent friend of hers and shows up as a character in each of the films I've watched that also have Marie in them. In this film, he's a nice alternative to her uninterested husband. While she and Louis have started having children and are quite fond of each other, they just don't appear to be in love. To this day, we don't know whether or not Furson and Marie were actually lovers or just good friends. There were rumors at the time, and those persist to today. France's debt is becoming a major problem. The American war is costly, and the Queen's expenses don't help matters. Marie dismisses as ridiculous the story that she said, let them eat cake, in response to the people's lack of bread. And yes, this famous quote 
attributed to Marie Antoinette, does appear to have been just a story spread by those looking to put her as a scapegoat for the problems in France at the time. The Queen finally has a son in October of 1781. I got a little confused by the sons shown in the various movie versions until I did the research. Louis and Marie had a second son in 1785 who outlived his parents, while the first son died at 8 years old, just before the start of the revolution. Throughout the 1780s, the Queen's popularity drastically declined. She was called Madame Deficit, and her opulence did become a focal point of the struggling common folk. Rumors spread about sexual debauchery going on at Versailles. Some believe her second son was actually Fersen's. Historians don't seem to agree, even those who do agree they were lovers. Homosexual affairs were also rumored, though, again, most of it seems an attempt to discredit her. The Austrian issue never went away either. Various things would come up with her convincing her husband to intercede for the good of Austria, regardless of its effect on France. The exact causes of the French Revolution are still debated by historians. We've discussed the financial strains. There were also years of bad harvests, and basically those who had little just began to resent more and more those who had plenty. Basically, hey, we're really struggling here. Why are they unaffected? And we're in the era of the Enlightenment and the American Revolution. The common people were beginning to believe that the existing social order was just a bunch of crap, that the nobility and the clergy were no better and no more worthy than themselves. And with that, let's transition into today's film, Farewell My Queen. We open in Versailles on July 14, 1789. Our main character in this film is actually a fictional servant named Sidney, and we see the events of the film through her eyes. The contrast between rich and poor continues to be on display as Sidney shares a rat-infested apartment building with several other servants who do their best to look nice before heading to the palace for work. Sidney is Marie Antoinette's personal reader. She reads to the queen from poetry books, novels, or even her fashion catalogs. She talks to her friends about how frivolous the queen is. All she cares about is her pretty dresses. Sydney spends the evening with her poor friends, eating, dancing. The whole point here is that in Versailles, they were completely oblivious to what happened on July 14th, 1789 in Paris. You may not recognize that date, but that's Bastille Day. Sydney is awakened by her neighbor on the morning of the 15th, and all they know at first is that something significant happened because the king was roused in the middle of the night. They wouldn't have woke the king up unless it was really important. So this whole film is a somewhat standard historical drama, but we only know what Sydney knows and learn of the events as she learns of them. So a lot of the film is just gossiping amongst the servants. We hear one servant say she heard the word Bastille four times, so something must have happened there. Sydney finally gets the story from an old librarian who she often goes to for books to read to the queen. I'll just quote what he tells her. Yesterday at dawn... A munitions convoy heading to the Bastille was attacked by rioters, who afterwards pillaged the invalid's arsenal, enough to arm the people, who then headed en masse to the Bastille. The French guard put up a bitter fight, but in vain. The prison commander, Monsieur de Lony, was beheaded. Many Swiss guards hanged or killed. And who was being detained in the royal jail? Four forgers, two lunatics, and a deviant confined at his family's request. Sydney is afraid for the safety of the queen, who still seems more worried about dresses. An important character we need to meet is the Duchess of Polignac, who I'll call Gabrielle, as that's what the queen calls her. Like Count Fersen, she shows up in all three movies I watched about Marie Antoinette, the two we've mentioned this week and the one for next week's episode. 
It's interesting to see how each deals with her in a slightly different manner. I'll start with my research. Gabrielle came to Versailles in 1775, so 14 years earlier, and made an instant impression on the queen, who asked that she stay on permanently. Though a member of the aristocracy, Gabrielle and her husband couldn't necessarily afford that, but Marie took care of her debts and found a job for her husband. Gabrielle became friends with all the royals, and Louis XVI encouraged the friendship, seeing the positive effect it had on his wife. Gabrielle is said to have been one of the most beautiful women in France at the time, and had plenty of enemies jealous both of her ties to the royal family and just her style and beauty in general. She was used as yet another reason for people to dislike the queen. I mentioned that she was a duchess, but that was only because her husband was made a duke in 1780, another sign of the heavy favoritism shown to them. Gabrielle became the subject of many rumors thrown against Marie Antoinette in the late 1780s, with some saying that the queen and her were lovers. Defenders claimed that this was all overblown and Gabrielle wasn't at the palace that much. Regardless, in 1789, she was at Versailles and a close companion of the queen, and her family was politically tied to supporting the monarchy. The movie Farewell My Queen seems to support the theory that Gabrielle and the Queen were lovers. In fact, throughout, we are also led to believe that Sidney is jealous of their relationship and may be in love with the Queen herself, but this is all more subtext than a major plot point. At this time, again, it's July 15th, there's a pamphlet going around with a list of 286 heads that must be cut off to bring about reform. Marie Antoinette is the name at the top of the list. Sydney is summoned to the Queen to gather books for the Queen to take with her when she flees to Metz for safety. There's still a constant attention paid to preserving their valuables while also being worried for their lives. July 16th. Everyone at Versailles is just in a funk. Some of the King's guards have fled. The King insists on staying, despite the insistence of his brother and others that they flee. Louis just refuses to be afraid of his people, and not in a tyrannical way, but in a they're-my-people-and-I-love-them way. This puts an end to the Queen's plan to flee to Metz. Again, all three movies mentioned that this was the plan, but that the king insisted on their staying. Though they encourage others to flee, and we get a tearful farewell between Gabrielle and Marie Antoinette. Sidney later hears the king say the people want not just bread, but power. He finds that sadly amusing and says, I've always considered power a curse one inherits unwillingly. July 17th. The king leaves for Paris at the people's request after an emotional goodbye to his wife and two children. Again, this movie never mentions the fact that the couple just lost their elder son about six weeks before this. To help Gabrielle escape safely, the queen has Sidney disguised as her, and Gabrielle dresses as a servant. Sidney accepts this role, but is heartbroken to be potentially sacrificed in this way when she was so jealous of Gabrielle's relationship with the queen. In her closing voiceover, Sidney says, My name is Sidney Laborde. Both my father and mother are dead. I was the queen's reader. I obey the queen. Soon I will be far from Versailles. Soon I will be no one. Again, Sidney is unfortunately a fictional character, invented for the novel that this film was based on. Dashwell Gabrielle did escape to Switzerland, where her already poor health, which isn't mentioned in the movie, deteriorated. She died shortly after hearing of the queen's death, which I suppose could be used as an example of how close they were. But we're not there yet. We're going to stay in Versailles and continue next week with a breakdown of the nearly six-hour monster of a film from 1989 entitled simply The French Revolution. The French Revolution.